Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. This is Tulsi here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the show. If you would like to support this show and the content that we're creating as we take a stand for freedom and speak truth and speak with some common sense during these insane times, please visit TulsiGabbard.com and click on the support button. Uh, The only way that we're able to produce this show is through support from listeners and viewers just like you. Again, visit TulsiGabbard.com and click support. Aloha. They told my parents that... If they didn't allow me to transition, I would be at risk of suicide when I, I, I was never suicidal before I transitioned, ever. They gave my, my parents this false premise of, would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? would think that as divided as our country is, that there at least there's got to be one thing that we can all agree is sacred, the well-being of our kids. But if this is what you think, you'd be wrong because it's not the case at all. We have leaders in today's Democrat Party who are actively pushing an agenda to sexualize our kids at very young ages in public schools and impose this radical gender ideology that actually encourages young kids to go through dangerous medical procedures under this very misleading guise of quote-unquote gender-affirming care. Now let's be clear, gender-affirming care in the way that they are using this is nothing less than child abuse. At a time when kids should just be allowed to be kids, playing outside, playing with their toys, playing uh, pretend, these kids are being asked questions and to make decisions about their so-called gender identity and what their sexuality is. For kids in middle school and high school, with their hormones raging and kicking in, this can be a pretty confusing time. And instead of just acknowledging this, we have so-called progressive activists who are pushing this dangerous agenda that threatens the very health and safety of our kids, criminalizes their parents who are going out and expressing very real concerns about what their kids are being taught in school, and it also dangerously undermines fundamental truths. Now, this is not just some fringe issue that's affecting a few people and that should easily be dismissed. The reality is that the very people in our society that we are supposed to be able to trust the most, teachers and doctors, these are the very people who are perpetuating the falsehood that there is no such thing as women and that there is no such thing as biological differences between sexes and that anyone can be a woman just because they feel like it, that our identity is somehow defined by what we feel. Feelings change. Nothing could be further from the truth. But parents, meanwhile, are being told that they must support their 10-year-old, 11, 12-year-old daughter going on puberty blockers, suppressing their hormones, or even going under the knife to remove their breasts, 
or else face the consequences. And those consequences, they will be accused of child abuse and potentially face losing their child with the government coming and taking their kids away. This is not some theory. This is actually happening right now in our country. Parents are having their kids taken away from them for something as simple as refusing to call their child by a different pronoun than their biological sex. Now, here's an example of what I'm talking about. This past August, Boston Children's Hospital faced intense backlash after an official video they released was found out where some of their doctors and hospital administrators were promoting what they call gender-affirming hysterectomies for young girls who identify as transgender. Videos that they put out in this series tried to answer questions like, when does a child know they're transgender? The hospital's very director of gender multi-specialty services stated that children, quote, will often know that they're transgender from the moment they have any ability to express themselves. And parents will often tell us this. A child will often know that they are transgender from the moment that they have any ability to express themselves. And parents will often tell us this. We have parents who tell us that their kids, they knew from the minute they were born practically, and actions like refusing to get a haircut or standing to urinate, trying to stand to urinate, refusing to stand to urinate, trying on siblings' clothing, uh, playing with the quote opposite gender toys, things like that. A good portion of children do know as early as seemingly from the womb and they will usually express their gender identity as very young children, some as soon as they can talk. They might say phrases such as I'm a girl or I'm a boy or I'm going to be a woman or I'm going to be a mom. Kids know very, very early. So in the GEMS clinic we see a variety of young children all the way down to ages two and three and usually up to the ages of nine. When they come into the clinic they'll see one of our psychologists and we'll be talking to them about their gender, we'll be talking to their family about how to best support that child and how to make sure that that child has the space and support to explore their gender and uh, do well throughout their development. A gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur. A hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus, the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries, but that's technically a separate procedure called a bilateral oophorectomy. And not every gender-affirming hysterectomy includes that, and people who are getting gender-affirming hysterectomies do not have to have their ovaries removed. Are you kidding me? We're being told by these so-called medical professionals that a five-year-old girl who likes playing with trucks, or in my case, as a young girl who liked martial arts, or a little boy who's interested in his sister's Barbie dolls, that these are actually really cries for medical intervention and possibly irreversible sex change surgery. This is how dangerous it is, what we're talking about, what's happening here. Now, we have recorded phone calls and a since-removed webpage that shows the Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. was offering so-called gender-affirming hysterectomies to children younger than 16. If you do it for 16-year-olds, then yes, I'd love to schedule um, an appointment, a consultation, whatever you need. If, if you don't mind me asking, um, what is your child gender changing to? So I can point you to the right direction. Yeah, well, he transitioned to a male. You know, he already had the top surgery, um, and now we're looking for the hysterectomy. 
Okay, beautiful. So I'm going to transfer you to the GYN nurse line. One of the nurses will give you a call to give you more information and to let you know the steps and the protocol that they do for that, okay? Okay. So so they do so they would do it um for at the, for that age? Yes. Okay, great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes, um we have um all different type of age groups that comes in for that. For the gender for the hysterectomy? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you know, like, what's the youngest age you would do it on? I'm not sure, but I have seen younger kids. And I'm not, you know, due to hip, I'm not allowed to say that, but I have seen younger kids, like, younger than your child's age. The gender-affirming hysterectomy surgery? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, okay, I really appreciate your help. According to, according to uh, a research paper that was recently published to the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics show that there has been a 389% increase in children receiving mastectomies from 2016 through 2019. I want to say that again, children receiving mastectomies. The UCLA School of Law's Williams Institute published a study that found the number of transgender youth in America has doubled in just the past five years. And when you look at these statistics, you've got to realize that this is not an accident. This didn't just happen. This is very intentional, and it's the consequence of this radical agenda that is being pushed on our kids. They're rejecting the existence of objective reality by rejecting this most fundamental truth of the differences between a biological male and female. Now, even as there are no long-term studies on the effects of these dangerous treatments on our kids, those in power in government and so-called medical professionals continue to push them. Many of the standard protocols that they are pushing include puberty blockers and hormones, some of which were just recently flagged by the FDA because of their plausible link to serious brain disorder, cognitive problems. Now that hasn't uh, stopped President Biden from going and telling parents that, quote, affirming your child's identity is one of the most powerful things you can do to keep them safe. To parents of transgender children, affirming your child's identity is one of the most powerful things you can do to keep them safe and healthy. You've got transgender U.S. Assistant Health Secretary Rachel Levine claiming these dangerous treatments actually empower our youth and that any dissent, anyone saying otherwise, is driven by political motives. Trans youth need to be supported. They need to be affirmed. They need to be empowered. There is no argument about the value and the importance of gender-affirming care. There is no argument. A lot of that is political. I think that there are people that are using transgender individuals as a wedge issue, and so that is um, precipitating some of the very challenging and difficult bills um, in, in, in many of the states. This angers me so much because of who is being harmed by these people in the most powerful offices in this country. What they are saying could not be further from the truth. Now, the study from the International Review of Psychiatry found that 80% of those who identify as transgender and seek medical intervention eventually lose their desire to identify as the opposite sex. Countless so-called transgender youths have grown to deeply regret their decision 
citing it as the worst mistake of their lives. Now, at age 11, Chloe Cole was just a girl living in Central Valley, California, where like a lot of kids, she grew up roughhousing with her older brothers, playing outside in the dirt, playing video games. She was a tomboy. She found herself relating more to boys, struggling to make friends with girls and and just not really fitting in at school. She got on her phone and started looking at social media and, and she heard people telling her, well, you're obviously a boy stuck in a girl's body. Chloe told her family and her friends that she was a boy named Leo, and she began her medical transition at just 13 years old. Shortly after that, she had a double mastectomy, her breasts cut off at age 15. After she had this surgery, she began to feel a deep sense of regret. And that is what began her journey to detransition. I realized after maturing a bit more, that a child does not in fact know who they are at 12 years old. I realized that I wanted to be what I always was and forever will be, a woman. With this realization came a series of challenges that were far worse than the transition. Somehow, I had to get myself off these drugs and tell everyone in my entire life that I was not who I said I was. My parents were shocked and felt like they failed me on every level imaginable. My friends all turned against me because I was evidence that their beliefs were a lie. I was a joke. I was a fraud. I was many years behind in development, incapable of feeding, of, incapable of feeding my future children, and worst of all, completely alone. Well, it's good to see you again. Yeah, it's really, this is really cool. <laughs> um, I, I knew you were going to be speaking in Nashville when we were there. Yeah. Um, you know, have seen uh, your videos on social media and, and um, I mean, gosh, press conferences, all kinds of stuff, but it was really powerful to hear you speak in person. Thank you. How do you feel? How do you feel about everything going on? There's a lot going on. <laughs> there is a lot going on. It's, it's really excited and I'm just, I feel blessed just to be able to be involved in all of this really. Yeah. Some people might say, um, might, might have a more negative view. You've been through a lot of challenges. It's really powerful to hear you say that you feel blessed to have the opportunity to kind of be the voice that you are. What, what is, uh, so, so I know um, you've got some big news. What's happening right now? What's, what's the thing that you're focused on and, and you're trying to push? So um, recently I testified in front of the Florida Board of Health for a second time, and um, they ended up passing a rule that would ban gender-affirming care in minors. So that was a, that was a pretty big win. Yeah. Um, so you had you had a pretty significant role to play in that. T- tell me a little bit about like how did you how did you get there, <laughs> and when was the first time you went and, and talked to them? There 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 were two events. It was one one was a private meeting with the board of health, and the other was a testimony in front of the um, in in a courtroom. But um, okay, and and it was um, so this rule change had to do with making it so that minors would be prohibited from going through uh, medical transition. Is that right? Yeah. The first one was um, having to do with the Medicaid bill banning um, banning uh, Medicaid coverage for for gender-affirming care. Okay. And then when, when, when did that happen? This was, I believe, in June or August. Oh, wow. So it's been a, it's been a busy year for July, you. July or August. That's pretty incredible to see how 
uh, in just a few months period of time. You like, you know, obviously I've worked in politics and it is frustratingly slow most of the time. And so, you know, you introduce a bill one year, it might take you five, six years just to get it passed through Congress or even sometimes at the state legislative level. So it's a, it's pretty cool. It's got to be pretty cool for you to see just over the span of less than a year um, that kind of change being made that will really impact so many people. Yeah, I can't really say that I expected um, this kind of <laughs> change to do come it. so quickly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or even that I was going to be doing this. I mean, not to, yeah. if you told me at the beginning of the year that this is what I was going to be doing, I, I, wouldn't believe, I wouldn't believe you. Yeah. You know, I've, I've read, obviously, a little bit about your story. The first time that I heard your voice and saw you was a video that I think you just did yourself on your iPhone and put out on Twitter. And um, I don't know when this was, but I feel like it was maybe a couple of years ago. Um, so you said this was a video like shot on iPhone, right? It seems like you might it. be you might you might be speaking about one of my um, one of my first live interviews. Oh, that might be it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was with uh, okay. the Laura Ingram show. Okay, so so that that first time that you spoke out publicly. Um, what was going through your mind? How were you preparing? Uh, and did you know? Um, what, what did you think the response would be? So, I mean, before I started speaking out publicly, I already knew that there would be kind of a negative back, there would be sort of a backlash from other transgender people and activists because I had already experienced it in, um, in my private life. I mean, before I even went public with this and very early in my detransition and even before once I started expressing like regret and that I didn't like how it made me look and the health issues that it was bringing me, I would, um, other transgender people would start to get aggressive with me and start to tell me, oh, you deserve this and you, you, you're, you're not, you weren't stupid. You knew what you were doing to yourself. And they were telling me that by speaking out about the, um, how transitioning has negative effect of, affected me. Yeah. I was harming other real transgender people. And, you know, I, I didn't want to cause problems for other people. And I mean, I didn't want to get all this negative attention just for speaking about it. And so I actually went silent for a little bit and I stopped talking about my experiences for a little bit until I realized that I was being silenced and that what was happening to me was a very real thing and it's happening to other people as well and I can't just stay silent about it. And so even though I knew that there might be a negative reaction from it and that I might be losing friends over it, that somebody, I don't know who else is going to speak out on it. So it's, it's a responsibility that I have to take upon myself amazing. Have you found others as you've gone through this process who yeah. are of the few who've had the, the courage to speak out? Yeah. So, um, after I detransitioned, I started seeking, um, support from groups online, but, um, it wasn't really until I made my Twitter and started speaking out publicly that I, it, it started with like a bunch of, a bunch of parents, and um, concerned adults, people who knew like trans-identified kids and teens, um, speaking to me, um, coming forward to me with their own stories. 
But then eventually, there were, I started getting messages from detransitioners and seeing other detransitioners pop up. And um, at first, it was mostly like adults, people who were transitioned mm. and detransitioned as adults. And so eventually, I I ended up um, meeting a few people who were transitioned as minors, actually. Literally have gone through what you went through. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that, as I learned a little bit more about your background and your story, that that even I identified with, that you grew up. How many older, how many siblings do you have? Um, I have four siblings all older than me. Okay. And they're, they're all boys? Um, two boys, two girls. Okay. I grew up with older brothers, and I was a tomboy growing up. I have three older brothers and a younger sister. And, um, you know, there was a period in my life where I was, or, you know, I was 11, 12, 13 years old. And I was just like, man, like all, like my brothers are having a lot more fun than a lot of my female friends are. And, um, I just, I just want to have nothing to do with it. I was like, yeah, I want to go and do what the boys are doing. This is awesome. Uh, and really, really, truly, truly was a, a very serious tomboy. I was into martial arts and had short hair and just like the whole thing. I just like, yeah, whatever the girls were doing, it was, it was, not interesting to me yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> That's kind of how it was for me growing up. What did you like to do when you were when you were a kid? I wasn't really like a like a physical sort of tomboy. Like I mostly just like stayed inside, played video games, did illustration, yeah. things like that. Yeah, I was sort of a more nerdy sort. <laughs> um, so what? Uh, what what happened then? Like, so you're you're eleven years old. And how do you go from being a nerdy kid playing video games, having fun, to then beginning this journey that you've been on now since then? The internet. That's how. Really. <laughs> so I got my um, I got my first phone when I was eleven, and very quickly after I started using social media, obviously, because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to connect with other people my age and. Um, I mean, did. everybody else my age had a phone and was using Instagram and Snapchat and things like that. So I made an Instagram account for myself. And um, I didn't really have a whole lot of friends at school. Like Sometimes I would follow the people from school, but I was mostly... Um, I started to make friends. I started to get involved in online communities more. Um, I mean, by this point, I had um, I had just moved to a, to a new school, and I didn't really have a whole lot of friends in person. I didn't really get along with uh, the, the people around me, and I was kind of getting mistreated both by other students and staff. So I just I turned to the internet, and very quickly after I started making social media was when um, I started seeing like a lot of. Um, LGBTQ content. This was um, after um, LGBT LGBTQ started to become a a trending topic. This was maybe like 2015, 2016. So, mm-hmm. um, in these online communities, I like I said earlier, I was kind of a nerd. I liked I liked video games, comics, things like that. And in these communities around these these series and games that I liked, for some reason there seemed to be a lot of like teenagers who identified as 
like transgender, non-binary, bisexual, things like that. And um, I started slowly getting more exposed to just general LGBTQ content. Right. And eventually it was to the point that I was seeing a lot of like other trans identified fe- teenage females my age, like around like 12 to 19 years old. And it was, it was always females mm. who identified as boys. And sounds pretty targeted. Just, yeah, it stuck out to me how they seem to be so happy with themselves by doing this and how they seem to have a community of people who really cared about them and really had their backs and that they're it was almost kind of hopeful in that like their their families were accepting them and you know as a as a kid who didn't really have a whole lot of friends and was always kind of like a it's kind of on the tomboyish side and was a little bit awkward um that's something that i subconsciously wished for myself a little bit Sure. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's natural. <laughs> you know, especially if as you said, if you're not if you're not finding those friends, you're not finding that community in that place where you felt you fit in yeah. anywhere else. Um seeing it through the lens of, of social media, right, where things are obviously very curated and uh, both by people who are posting content, but also by the social media algorithms themselves yeah. pushing things towards you. The algorithm the, is very aggressive, especially on Instagram. Yeah. You've like, talked a um, little bit about... Go ahead. I just made an account for... An official account for Instagram, and the only information that I put in was that I was 18 years old and female, and my whole Explore feed was... I would say like a third of it was like women my age who were, like, in, like, very, like, sexualized poses or clothing. I mean, a lot of them are wearing a lot of makeup or, like, they've... They have very, like, idealized bodies. Some of them have, like, obviously had, like, work done on their faces or yeah. bodies. And that's been a thing for a while, actually. And um, because I started using social media at a, at a young age, I was exposed to stuff like that pretty young. And, you know, I was just a... I was I was only 11 when I first started to really see this and you know I was barely a few years into puberty and I didn't really look like an adult but mm-hmm. I started to develop some body image issues because I didn't understand that even if I didn't look that way I wasn't exactly supposed to look a certain way because I mean I was only so old and I mean exactly. a lot of these, there's a lot of unre- unrealistic images on online anyways for women of any age, what to speak of kids yeah. who's 11 years old. And yeah. even for men. Yeah, exactly. Same. So at what point did you start to um, kind of go from, you know, exploring what was on social media and seeing these people who, you know, you said seem to, they, they seem to look happy, right? They seem to, to have, um, uh, find some place of, of being where they, they belonged what happened next? With the algorithm recommending that stuff to me so aggressively and just having me be exposed to it 
for for so long at such an impressionable at such an impressionable age, I feel like it was only really a natural progression that um eventually down the line I started to question my own sexuality, my own gender identity, and start to change my expression a little bit. Um you know, since I didn't fit in with other girls and I didn't look a certain way and I thought there was something wrong with me. It started to, the idea that um, maybe I wasn't a girl and that I was actually a boy started to make sense to me. How did you change your expression? Um, it started with cutting my hair shorter and buying buying more boys clothing. Yeah, near 11 at the time. Um, 12. I was yeah. 12 when I started, um, when I started, um, I didn't find that transgender. And what, can, can you just share a little bit of what, um, what your conversation with your parents was like around this time? Cause I imagine yeah, so, obviously it's very confusing and you know, you're trying to figure things out. I'm sure they were trying to figure things yeah. out. <laughs> um, it took a while for me to come out to them. Actually, I, I wasn't exactly sure how they would react. So at first, it just started with me coming out to some other family members and some people who I was closer to at school. And then eventually down the line, I came out to my parents. I, I wrote a letter to my parents and I left it on the dining room table. And the reason why I wrote a letter instead of um, having the conversation, starting the conversation face to face was because... I mean, it was kind of an intimidating confession to make to them. It's, it's a big, it's a, it's a, um, it was a big thing to admit. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether they would react negatively or positively. Um, and I kind of wanted to allow them some time to think about it as well. And so... I let them read over it, and then eventually we had the conversation in person, and they were supportive of me. They wanted what was best for me, but they weren't really sure how to go about it because, I mean, they're, they were just were nerd people. This wasn't thing. really their expertise. Oh, and it was, yeah, it totally wasn't an, yeah. a new thing at the time. This was, what, like... 2017 I think when I came out to them mm -hmm. so it wasn't being talked about nearly as much as it is now and there weren't people who have detransitioned like speaking out about the negative effects of it right then so there wasn't nearly as much information on this at least non-biased information on it yeah exactly and I think it's so uh you know we we hear this term gender affirming care being thrown around left and right uh, obviously in the media, uh, in different uh, legislation that's being proposed, uh, even, of course, the, um, you know, the head of health and human services at the federal level talking about, hey, it's so important for parents and schools and so on, uh, society to provide, uh, even the government to provide gender affirming care, which, you know, whether you're parents or teachers, you are caring for kids and young people and you want what's best for them but the term is is very misleading it is 
How how was it? So so obviously, you know, your parents want what's best for you and and are seeking some kind of expert guidance and help. Um, who did you find? Who did you find to talk to as a family to help you through this? They started with a a child psychiatrist because I mean it really is a mental health issue, right? And. They, they they got that right, but it actually was a mistake because they wanted to figure out, my parents, they wanted to figure out why I felt this way and what to do about these these feelings, but that wasn't what happened at all. It was just affirmation from then on, no questioning. Was there anyone who was a medical professional at every step of the way who um, actually communicated to you, okay, here's, you know, here, here are the actual like medical, physical, biological consequences of, of what those who are pushing this, this gender affirming care um, maybe weren't telling you? Yeah. So for every step in my medical transition, like the um, like my double mastectomy or the hormones and the blockers, I was given consent forms with um, with side effects listed, but a lot of it was just very vague. Mm. And I mean, there's was it kind of like you know when you see the prescription drug commercials on TV and they're like, oh, here's this beautiful yeah. rosy picture of you know a family frolicking through the meadow on a beautiful sunny day, and then you have this like really like um, I don't know uh, kind of deep sounding voice saying, oh, by the way, you know, you may have yeah. one of these a hundred side effects. Yeah. But you're seeing this image. They're, you're like, wait, something's not, something's not um, matching up here. Not only were the side effects listed very vague, it wasn't a fully comprehensive list. Um, there were side effects not listed that I ended up experiencing down the line. And um, I mean... With so many of the listed, you don't know which ones you're going to get. And I mean, right. I was a perfectly healthy girl before, so I didn't think that I would really experience any of this. And, you know, I was I was a kid. I was barely 13 when I started on, um, on testosterone and blockers. And I mean, when you're What did they tell you teen, that they would do? What do they tell you that those would do? Because we hear, you know, all these, I, and I, I, I'm curious, and I think a lot of people are really curious about, uh, you know, we hear these terms, hormone blockers, puberty blockers, chemical castration, but it's, it's uh, what did they tell you? Like, okay, take this because it's going to do what and why? We were basically told that um, the, the blockers would just be, would just put a hold on my puberty and that they were, that they were reversible. Actually, I don't know if that was told to me specifically. I know that's what they, they, um, I've heard them say this, uh, different people say this, that they are yeah. reversible. Um, well, my case is kind of weird because, um, I started blockers only a month before testosterone and they were prescribed together. Um, Why was that weird? Usually, um, they they promote blockers as like a way of pausing puberty and a way for mm. the child to just like 
decide whether they want to go with their their natural puberty or go with the um the a pure an artificial puberty more like the opposite sex. Right. But that's not how it works. Because there's no there's no development at that time. I mean there's the sex hormones are involved in brain development and if there's no brain and if the brain development is hindered during that time, then how can they possibly make that decision? That's so true. But um I think the reason why they put me on blockers was just to clear my my body of the natural sex hormones before um, I wanted testosterone. Because at that time you had made your decision and you wanted to move forward. Yeah. And they, they, they actually broke the gui- their guidelines at the time in doing this. Wow. What were they telling you? Were they encouraging you? Were they... Um, what were they telling you as as you were embarking on this? Um, what do you mean by that? I guess I'm just wondering is if you're going in and you're talking to them saying, this is what I want to do, um, you know, I'm curious about what their what their reaction is in just saying, okay, well, if this is what you want, here's what you do. Or Yeah, that know, was pretty much how it was. There was like... There wasn't like any real questioning except um, hmm. the first endocrinologist who I had been recommended to actually barred me from going on to get a prescription for blockers and testosterone because he he knew that this was developmentally inappropriate that I was too young to be going on these and um, he said that there would be concerns there may be concerns for my brain development because they don't know how the, how how these treatments affect adolescent brain development. But I mean, as much as I should have listened, I didn't because every other, every other source I had and every other medical professional who, I, who was involved with this was pushing this as the treatment. Yeah. No one really asking questions. Yeah, and even with the supposed informed consent I gave, I mean, the all the side effects given on those on those forums, they were the forums weren't comprehensive, and I mean, you know, since I was so young, it was like. And, and and healthy before I even started on this. I was compl- I was perfectly healthy before I started on this. It destroyed my health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just imagining some of my friends who have 11 and 12 year old kids, and I'm imagining them sitting in a doctor's office, being given all of these forms to read over and to just you know, I I know adults who have a hard time going through and actually understanding, you know, what they're being told by a medical professional or you know, having to try to figure out what, what does this all actually mean in real life? Not just what's on the paper, but but in real life. So I, it's, it's hard to imagine the position that you were in yeah, at such I a was, young um, age. I remember being a, um, in the room with my endocrinologist and she asked me, are you aware that this may affect your fertility down the line. And at the time I said, well, 
I don't really want kids because I was a 13 year old girl. I wasn't exactly. thinking about having kids. <laughs> Some people get, don't even know that they want to have kids until they're well into their 30s or 40s. How could a 13 year old girl make that decision? Exactly. There was a proposition that was recently passed, a proposal that was just passed in Michigan uh, this past election day. Are you, you familiar with Proposal 3? Um, I believe I've heard of it. It, it, basically, um, it basically says that uh, parents don't have a right to consent or, or even be informed if their child decides to go through this kind of transition. They specifically refer to, uh, they don't say a minor or a young child or refer to any age. They specifically change the language through a constitutional amendment to refer to uh, the individual. Rather, So, so without, without any age reference or anything else, um, it takes away any right and responsibility that parents have to have a say in uh, and provide consent or even be aware of this happening. It's just stripping parents of their rights. Yeah. It's so horrible. They told my parents that if they didn't allow me to transition, I would be at risk of suicide when I, I, I was never suicidal before I transitioned ever. So it they wasn't told your parents was, that just, just with just, they, they told your parents that without any kind of, indication or assessment of you and yeah they gave my my parents this false premise of would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son God, that just breaks my heart to hear that i cannot even imagine how they must have felt how does any parent make that decision or respond to that and being told that not by just some random person on the street but by someone who is supposed to be an expert they coerced them into allowing this just basically threw out everything that we know about child development and said oh she's old enough to know what she wants for herself children already know their their gender by by a certain age so she knows what's good for herself Wow. It's so, I mean, you, your, your story, Chloe, and your voice on this is so important because I know that there are other families and other kids who are struggling through this and not having, um, you know, pr probably a lot of people I'd imagine don't have someone that they can go to and, and have an honest conversation with someone they trust who will tell them the truth uh, about what to expect or, you know, Here's what the doctors or the social media people or, you know, whatever are saying. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things about this is, you know, we're talking about something that, I mean, what, what you've gone through has changed your life forever. That it can't be undone and it can't be reversed. And to have such a culture of fear be created where an honest dialogue is not even really allowed, what to speak of encouraged um, you know, it, it is harming kids, of course, the most and parents and families as well. And, and that, that to me is just the most, um, 
it's the most dangerous part about this for a society and people in power who claim to care about the most vulnerable, who claim to care about our kids, that everyone should stand together and take care of our kids. And, and using this term gender affirming care as a means of bullying people or worse, using the force of law to say, hey, parents, if you don't. And I saw a document from the federal government that basically said this, that if parents are not providing, quote unquote, gender affirming care, that child protective services may become involved. And this has happened. I know several people who have lost their children, lost custody wow. of, their, of their children to another parent or even to the state for not affirming their child's gender identity. And what is that? It's Is it that they're saying, no, we're not going to allow our child to go through puberty blockers and surgery? Or is it less Or even just that? referring to their child by the the wrong, or really the, their, their given name by accident. It can be something as little as that. This is so frightening and, and disturbing. Um, you've talked a little bit about, you know, the impact of the social contagion uh, on everything that's happening here. Can you talk about kind of your experience with that and what that means and the effects? Yeah, for me, I would really say that I was mostly influenced by social media, um, but when I first started transitioning, I was kind of like the token transgender kid at school. There weren't really a whole mm. lot of um, there weren't a whole lot of other. Actually, no, nobody else um, was transgender. I was I was I was in middle school when I started transitioning, both socially and medically. Um, it wasn't until. I would say maybe my sophomore year of high school that I started noticing other teenage girls were starting to identify as LGBTQ and especially TQ. A lot of them were um, starting to identify as non-binary or experiment with um, different pronouns or even ca start calling themselves boys. Mm. And it was, it was never, it was never boys. It was always girls who did this. I never knew any trans girls at school, it was always just, it was, it was, it was teenage girls who identified as boys. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Um, I would think that it would be factors similar to mine, like body image issues, social media, things like that. Right. What was it that, um, that drove you to kind of take the big step? past puberty blockers and testosterone to actually um, have surgery? So, I, um, before I got the surgery, um, a few months after I started um, taking testosterone and blockers, I started binding, which means um, I was using a compression device called a binder to sort of like flatten the appearance of my chest and hide my breasts. Um, because obviously I was, I was trying to present as, you know, male and I didn't want that part of my body to, to be exposed because that would, that would out me as, as actually being a female, right. but, um, Usually people start doing this before they go the medical route, but um, I was 
I thought it was small enough for not for it not to be noticeable, but it wasn't until I had been actually groped in within a school classroom that um, I realized that wasn't true, and I decided that I didn't. I didn't want that to happen to me again, and I, I was scared that for as long as my breasts were visible to the world that I would be at risk of being assaulted, and I decided to start hiding that part of myself. And this went on for about two years. I was using a binder for two years, and um, it was a very uncomfortable experience, actually, because, I mean, it's, impression, it's a compression device. It was like... Um, it was very sweaty. <laughs> like, it, w it would stick to my skin while I was, like, yeah. exercising or, like, swimming or, um, like, walking home from school. I live in a really hot area of California, so on some days and get from, like, anywhere from, like, 90 to 110, and I would just be walking home that hot weather with this, like, t-shirt, jeans, and this really hot thing just squeezing me, my, my torso, and, I mean, over time I got sick of it. Yeah. And I wanted to stop. I wanted to be free of that and not have to do that anymore. Um, and, you know, I like I said, I, have, I had some body image issues. I thought that my... Before I transitioned, I thought that my breasts were too small for me to be pretty and that it that it made me look like a boy because mm. I, I had some very regressive ideas about being a woman and I wasn't really close to other women, other women in my life, so I didn't really have anybody to really dispel or question those ideas. But um, not only did I have body image issues, but after... While I was transitioning, I genuinely believed that I was a boy, and I I wanted to because I believe this. I wanted to look like the the boys my age and be able right. to like not have breasts and like be able to swim shirtless and like just hang out without a shirt. And so I started to top surgery was presented as no. A double mastectomy, it's called. Top surgery is the euphemism here. Um, wow. Is that them just trying to make it sound like it's not as radical as it is? Yeah. It's almost kind of childish sounding. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was presented as an option for me, and so I started to seek it. When I, I, was, I was in sophomore year at this time, I was, I was 15 years old. And the puberty and, blockers, I imagined, were doing their job, and the testosterone was doing what it does. Yeah, I was—I only had about three or four shots of the blockers, which continued for about like a like a year or so. But I was on the testosterone for about three years, oh, so wow. I was about. This was um, about the two-year mark on testosterone when I started seeking um, the double mastectomy. Yeah. So this was, this was, it seems like this is kind of like the next big juncture in this medical transition and yeah. also another opportunity for medical professionals to say, okay, hold on a second. This is a very serious procedure 
here are the ramifications and consequences that you will face. The process of actually getting the surgery was very expedited and they really should have stopped to, to think about what was really going on because, um, as I went further into transition, my mental state was rapidly deteriorating. Mm. How so? Um, I started to experience, um, suicidal thoughts and depression and I was diagnosed with social anxiety and, um, I had a lot of things going on, like, while I, I was presenting as male and I actually, I actually did pass as the opposite sex. And so I became attractive to, to girls my age, but I was still attracted to men. So I wasn't really interested in those girls. And well, I did get sort of a feeling of validation that somebody was attracted to me, I had I did not reciprocate it at all, and so my dating pool was very limited. And I got to watch my peers like mingle with each other and get into relationships while I was just completely behind. And so that was a pretty big thing that I was missing out on. Right. And I think the testosterone itself and just transitioning took a huge toll on me. And it started to affect my grades. I started filling a bunch of classes. I had, I'm pretty sure I had a zero GPA at some point. And this kept getting worse as I progressed through high school. Um, but there really was no questioning of that. There was no real psychological evaluation um, during my consultations for the surgery. And I was allowed to go through it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. This is just, it's, it's so, um, it's such a clear dereliction of duty on the part of these medical professionals. It's negligence. Exactly. I hate, I can't even refer to them as professionals because even though they work in the profession of medicine, uh, it is negligence. It's dereliction of duty for them to not, um, uphold their own, you know, Hippocratic oath and to make sure that, um, they're telling the truth and that, that any patient is able to make the best informed decision, what to speak of with a minor, with a child still. And no matter what they told me, I would not have been able to consent as a minor. Right. Um, before I went under the knife, I was, I was informed that I would lose my ability to breastfeed, but I was 15 at the time and I didn't really understand what that meant because I mean, you know, I was, I was in high school. I was, I was yeah. trying, I was struggling with my grades. I was trying to like fit in and I had, I had some trauma with the, with the sexual assault and I had a lot of issues that weren't really being addressed. 
Um, but to expect you to then say, oh, so someday you want to have kids or not. <laughs> it's just, you know, like, like you said, a lot of women don't know that well into their life. It wasn't until I took a class on psychology and child development that I really understand what, that I really started to understand what not being able to breastfeed might mean because that was when I learned that breastfeeding, I mean, not only, not only are, um, breasts involved in, I mean, feeding the child and they also play a role in the bond between mother and child and yeah. I may have my I'm I might as well have severed that by having them removed and when I learned that I I had a lot of guilt. What was it that made you want to uh, take that class? I don't think there was really any particular reason. I was just told that. Um, I remember one of my one of my one of my classmates was like, "Oh, you should take psychology. It's." It's really fun, and I mean, it's really interesting because you're basically learning about yourself and the human race. So, hmm. so it wasn't connected to anything that you were going through necessarily. No, but and it yet was life changing. Yeah. Wow. How did you, um, after you went through that class, did you feel comfortable talking to your parents about what you were feeling then? Um. By this point, my relationship with my parents is really strained, and I didn't really talk to them a whole lot. Um, Who helped you through this? It, Did it, was anyone there for you? Um, so after after I finished that class, I kind of had a period where I was just I just felt really awful and. I started to realize that I really regretted my transition and I was realizing that I was realizing what it would really mean for me and that I was allowed to go through it when I wasn't really equipped to make that kind of adult decision really. And um, it wasn't until maybe about a few a few weeks after that I um, I broke down crying. I I couldn't bear to face my mom like that because I didn't I had a lot of guilt. I didn't want to. It was painful to admit to them that this thing that me and I mean the rest of my the rest of the family was so invested in, right, was a was a huge failure, and I, I felt like a burden. And so I could only I I couldn't even face my mom. I could only manage to text her, and it was a few days until we had that face to face conversation, but. I was I was crying to her about how I missed my breast and I wish that I was just allowed to grow and I missed being f my femininity and I didn't know if I would ever be able to take it back I just didn't know what to do with myself and it stayed that way for quite a while um I just kind of existed for a bit not really knowing what to do with myself until I decided to seek online support because I wasn't really seeing it from anywhere else. I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, and then I started to, I, I started to learn about um, detransitioning and 
how there's I'm I'm not alone in this process. Yeah. Um but my parents they really were at a loss of what to do with me because I mean it felt like a huge failure for them, for all of us. And other than other than them, I I just didn't really have a whole lot of support because, I mean, the medical professionals, they won't they won't help me. They they to this day they've been very unhelpful, and I just can't I can't even bring myself to reach out to them anymore. I mean, really? I came out to I I I expressed to my gender therapist, my gender specialist, and my therapist, and my endocrinologist, and even my surgeon that. I regret my transition, every step of it, and that I am detransitioning. Um, and their responses have been overall pretty unhelpful. Um, my endocrinologist, um, I requested some blood work from her a few um, a year back, just to test where my where my levels were at after sure. going off testosterone. Um, and while I got the results back, I specifically requested that I was given the, um, I told her that I, I, I no longer identify as male, I'm female, and I want the information for a female my age, and I was given the, um, the guidelines for, um, the average hormone levels for a teenage boy. Really? So that was the, that was the first, uh, taste of how unhelpful medical professionals tend to be with detransition. Um, even from my gender specialist and therapist, they didn't really know what to do with me because, I mean, the affirmative care model was, anything other than that would be, in my state, considered conversion therapy. And so they just kind of, mm. all they could really do was just listen to me and just listen to me talking about my regret and, um, my, my surgeon, I reached out to him because this year I've had regressions in my healing after the mastectomy and I'm having some really bad complications actually. And he, I, I haven't been able to get a physical consultation with him. It was just a, it was just like a five minute zoom call and it, it felt very rushed. It felt kind of, it felt like he was being a little bit rude. And the advice he gave me was just put some Vaseline on it, slap some Vaseline on it. You'll be Are fine. Are you serious? And it worsened my condition for a little bit. I have not reached out to them since. I can't. I know they're not going to help me. This is the problem. They, they say gender affirming care. But as you're telling them, I am identifying as a female. They're not willing to support you and and actually care for you yeah um i mean gender affirming care is a euphemism in itself because it's not affirming anything other than an illusion exactly it shouldn't be about identity it should be about reality yeah and yet reality was just completely brushed aside because i felt a certain way yeah I think that's such an important um, point that you make, Chloe, about how 
the way someone feels at any given time does not equate who they really are and that it is an illusion. And you've talked a little bit about publicly about how the, the, the bigger issue here, what's really happening is a spiritual battle that's taking place. And this isn't something that, that, um, that I've really heard many other people talk about, certainly no one who's gone through what you've gone through. What, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a spiritual battle? Sorry, is it okay if I take some time nope. to answer Do this? Do whatever you need. Yeah, um, no problem. Take your time. I also, I also need to use Russian real quick. So. Yep, yep, no problem. For starters, the very idea of a gender identity is sort of... It's very similar to a soul. A lot of these, a lot of people who identify as transgender call themselves like agnostic or atheists. But gender identity is sort of... It's like a soul, basically. Like, it's this detached entity that's part of you, but it's not a part of your body somehow. They, they basically, they, they're trying to change the definition of what it means to be female and male. It's no longer, to them, it's no longer about sex, but it's about a feeling. Right. Um... I feel that personally, my transition and detransition was sort of a personal spiritual battle. Um, sorry, there's just a lot to this. There's no, I know it, it's it's a really deep it's a really deep um, statement. Uh, because so much of the conversation around this is very super, it is the most superficial one could possibly uh, be when you're saying, hey, just because you feel this way, then that is who you are. It was, nothing could be further from the truth. It's a very complex battle around this yeah. very superficial idea. Um, transitioning was presented as this cure that, in this this cure for my distress and yet I just, it kept making me worse yeah. in every, in every, in every way. My physical health started to deteriorate. My mental well-being started to deteriorate and my performance in every part of my life, whether it be from school and even just taking care of myself, just dropped the further I went into it. But there were little moments um, towards the end of my transition, actually, that um, I think were an act of God. Um, I remember one night I I didn't realize it, but I was crying to myself for hours, and. I was just in the fetal position in my bed and I sort of snapped out of it and I realized that I, I was just I was just sobbing. I didn't even know for how long, but I was just covered in tears and I got up and I looked at myself in the mirror and I I heard this voice in my set I heard this voice in my head say, 
You're not being honest with yourself. You need to grow up. I don't know, I don't know what it was. It, it felt like almost like a, like an older sister speaking to me. Mm. I think that was really one of the first moments that woke me up to the reality of things. The spiritual battle is something that is not only affecting and impacting um, this whole debate and conversation around, you know, gender affirming care and this trans ideology that's being pushed on kids in schools, especially from a really young age. You know, we also see it, th this question of identity is really what's at the heart of it, right? And we see this around identity politics where people are, yeah. you know, trying to play to one group or another based on you know, whether it's race or ethnicity, religion, you see a lot of people in politics racializing everything, um, reducing people down to nothing more than the color of their skin. Or, you know, you, you, take, you take your pick. And, um, and that, that's... A very that's, superficial feature. It's completely superficial. And it's so disconnected. You mentioned, you know, a lot of people who are pushing this are people who are atheists or agnostic. And that's, that's, really, that's really it, because if you are identifying with a feeling or even the color of your skin, then you're not recognizing the truth, which is you know, our true identity of who we all are as spirit, as children of God. And that everything else is, um, you know, it's like, it's like wearing clothes. <laughs> yeah, and I think in doing that, it's, really them subconsciously looking for some sort of faith, grasping for something to believe in. Yeah. And it's no wonder, you know, as you share kind of the mental anguish and the confusion, the depression that you went through. Um, now, as you look back, as you understand the truth, you can, you can, you can connect the dots and say, well, of course you're miserable. If you forget that you're a child of God, then, of course you're going to be miserable, right? <laughs> of course it's going to cause confusion. And uh, it's, it's really powerful that, that uh, you know, you opened your heart to God to be able to, to understand that truth and to feel his unconditional love for you no matter what. <laughs> I don't think I could have gotten through this otherwise. Yeah. Thank you for being so willing to open your heart and to share your story with other people, Chloe, because it's so powerful and it's coming at such an important time where, um, you know, whether it's on social media or it's different external pressures or people in politics looking for power. I mean, they're really, they're really using and abusing kids and people for their own selfish gain, even the healthcare industry for their own profits. Uh, increase their own profit margins, seeing how they can make a lot of money from this this growing trend um, with with very few people willing to stand up and speak the truth. Uh, people like yourself who have gone through this and can speak from personal experience or others who um, actually care, care for others and have the courage to to speak the truth. And that's, you know, when we have people who deny 
that we exist as women and that, you know, anyone can be a woman if you feel like it, uh, really what they're denying is truth. Yeah. And in essence, then, therefore, are erasing women, the very people that, that uh, a lot of a lot of politicians and other people claim, oh, you know, we got to stand up for women's rights and opportunity and equal rights. Standing and up for women's stuff. rights and they don't even know what women are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. but they're, they're presenting being a woman as not a biological, immutable fact. Yeah. It's just a feeling. And yet in the way they do it, it's very superficial, very very stereotypical, very oftentimes sexualized. And I mean, it's no wonder that a lot of young girls these days don't want to grow into women. Yeah. And by telling them that being a woman is just a feeling, you're telling them that there's a way out. Mm. And it's just not true. It just leads them down to a path quite like men. What are the long-term consequences and effects that you're dealing with? Um, I've had that maybe some... Maybe social or physical or just across the, across the board? Well, the physical side effects come to mind first. Um, from the blockers, um, it's very likely that they've actually reduced my, um, my adult height. I was... Um, my older sisters are five foot seven and... Everybody else in my family is like um, five foot ten to about six five, and I ended up at five three. Mm. I was thirteen, so I was projected to have a few more years of growth, and that was when my puberty was halted. Mm. Um, I've gotten some some joint pains. Usually, it happens in my knees. Um, Recently, I've had some, I've had like shooting pains happening in both of my arms and my elbows and in my, my wrists, my fingers. Um, and I've been getting some, I've started getting some pain in my gums and my gums have uh, started to recede a little bit. And I think this is due to the, the blockers because these are, they're known to, uh, they're known to cause um, changes in bone density. Wow. Um, Which makes sense. Yeah. And the testosterone. Because your bones are developing. Yeah. Um, the testosterone. Um, because I was, I was still growing while I was on it, I think it's, I believe it's caused me to um, have an underdeveloped urinary tract. And so I have, I have some, I have some issues with, uh, with um, urinary tract infections, I used to get blood in my urine and sometimes tissue. It, it, mm. it got really bad for a while. Um, mm. And this was actually worsened um, after going off of testosterone for a little bit. Wow. And um, I was I was told um, in that consultation with my endocrinologist before I started, um, started testosterone at 13, um, that I may experience um, vaginal atrophy, but I was never really informed that um, the atrophy could also affect other organs in my pelvic area, such as my 
uterus or even my um like my bladder and i think um the combined um lack of development and atrophy is what's affecting my bladder right now and i've i, I can't say for sure because i mean my healthcare provider has been pretty unhelpful and i just can't get to the bottom of these things i mean the way they treated my gender dysphoria and even other areas of my health um, have been very similar. It's like, uh, in the past three years, it's basically just been, uh, oh, let's, uh, consult with you over the phone, and, uh, uh, there's no really, um, getting to the bottom of the issue. It's just treating the symptoms and mm. giving me some sort of medications, whether it be antibiotics or God knows what. Right. <laughs> some not, other not experimental medication. Cost. Um, but, um, since going off testosterone, I've, um, in the, in the first few months I was, I was very sickly. Actually, I lost a lot of weight. I went down from 125 to, at my lowest weight, I was about 105 within a matter of like, I think it was two months. Oh I just completely lost my appetite for a while. Um, I've been slowly getting it back. Um, and my weight has been going up and I've been getting sick less frequently, but, um, I can't say that I am really at where I was then, um, but I, I'm very surprised that I started getting periods about two months after I stopped testosterone because when I started on them, I was so young that, um, they weren't regular yet. I was only having, I was only having them like maybe like every three to four months by that point. So mm. the fact that they've been like, they they came so soon and that they've been relatively very regular is a, it's, it's a very hopeful sign to me, but I'm really not sure about like my overall reproductive health because I was, I was so young when I started these treatments. Yeah. I don't know if it could have affected like my eggs or like some other factor that would affect my ability to conceive a child. Um, obviously I'm not going to be able to breastfeed because I don't have yeah. my breasts anymore. Um, with my mastectomy, I've had a lot of, uh, I think that's been affecting me the most emotionally and, um, physically because this, be, I, I will warn you that this, this will get a bit graphic. I don't know where you're going to, are you going to post this to like YouTube or some other website? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would, I would recommend putting a timestamp here because, um, Okay. I will go into graphic detail here. Um, okay. Just, just like a, a little timestamp for people to skip it if they sure. don't want to hear it. But um, so the way the mastectomy was done on me, they not only like cut under my breast and removed the tissue, and um, basically contoured it to make a more masculine appearance. Mm. They also. Um, they described it to me like this to make it more digestible to me as a kid. Um, on an area of my chest, they would make a scrape, sort of like like a like a deep knee scrape, but more more controlled. And they would re they they removed my nipples and they basically put them into that area of scraped skin. Mm -hmm. To in a more they called it a more masculine position, 
And I mean, there's all there's all sorts of issues that come from that, like obviously because they sever the nerves and blood vessels, there will be issues with sensation and blood flow. But um, for me, um, the healing process hasn't been exactly linear. I was... The way it was presented to me, I would I would mostly be healed by um, around a year or so, but um, it's been well over two years, and earlier this year, the top layer of skin, which um, since the since the surgery has been pretty um, pretty dry on the top, it's basically it's regressed in healing it's constantly like emitting this clear fluid i have no mm. idea what it is and mm. the top layer of skin is just basically not there i have no idea what's going on and i i have to reach outside my healthcare provider to figure out what it is and if i can even treat it i'm just kind of at a loss of what to do with that right now i just right now i'm just i'm just trying to keep the area clean and like covered up with bandages so it doesn't like get on my clothes um but i i'm just kind of stuck with this and there's no way of you know there's no uh i don't know like i'm just thinking about gosh where are the resources that you could look to um, but this is part of the problem, right? Is what you're going through. Um, they're, they're, they haven't done st studies, expansive studies. They, they, they can't predict and tell you, okay, Chloe, you're 18 right now. Here's what you can expect in five years or 10 years or 15 or 20 years, what to speak of what's happening right now. No, I've tried to like look this up online, like look up my exact symptoms and figure out what is going on. Um, they're just no information they Gosh. say that usually the complications happen within like the first week or the first few months post-op but this started to happen two years after the fact and um Daunting. i just yeah i just i don't really know where to turn to yeah um I know we're gonna be um, we're gonna be publishing this episode after your announcement on Tucker. Um, so if you're comfortable with it, I'd love for you to. Um, and obviously, we'll cut this part out. But you're filing a lawsuit. Yes. We talk about how these medical providers have been negligent and derelict in fulfilling their professional responsibility. Um, you're not just talking about it, you're doing something about it. What's what's going on? Who you're you're taking on some powerful you're taking on some powerful people in this. I have to because there's a lot of other people who are in this situation, but they're they're all they're all adults and they're well out of the um the statutes of limitations to be able to take action for themselves. So um Who are you I'm suing? hoping to I'm hoping to yes. I'm I'm hoping to be able to create a precedent um, for other people in my situation to be able to take legal action and get compensated for their damages. Mm -hmm. I am suing my 
endocrinologist, my surgeon, and the gender, the gender specialists who recommended me to that surgeon, as well as the, the hospital that operated on me and Kaiser. Good. Good. Because they have not only, they have not only been derelict in doing this to you, they have not been, they've been derelict in continuing to help treat you. Yes. With all of the complications that you have now because of what they did. Well, I'm glad you're taking on this fight because uh, not only for yourself, my gosh, with everything that you're continuing to go through, but but to set that precedent uh, for others because I know you're not alone. I know you're not alone. And, and that's where I think your, um, you know, your message to other parents and kids who are going through this or who have gone through this uh, has, has such great power and impact. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. Um, before we let you go, though, I want to talk to you about, you just started an organization called D-Trans United. Yeah. And why did you start it and who's it for? Um, I started it because, I mean, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of like online support groups for detransitioners that mainly focus on like, um, just like having a sense of community and being able to find that support. And, mm -hmm. But there's, and being able to, um, find like medical, like psychological resources, but, um, there aren't a lot of, there aren't really any groups that are focusing on the activism side of things. I want to be able to cover all those areas, but mainly focus on the activism. Help empower people to lift their voices up. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I was, when I saw you, when I met you, and I was so excited to meet you in Nashville, uh, we were at a rally called um, Rally to End Child Mutilation. And uh, of course, Matt Walsh and the Daily Wire organized this. But I, I was, you, you wouldn't have known this, but I was standing, I don't know, maybe 30 feet behind you as you were speaking. And you were delivering such an incredibly powerful message and a powerful speech in front of thousands of people. And I was seeing how you stood there strong and how in front of you, directly in front of the podium, there was a small but pretty loud group of people who um, were claiming that everyone gathered there was transphobic. Fascists. Uh, making fascists, <laughs> exactly. They had their signs, they had their bullhorns and megaphones and banging on pots and pans. They were really trying to drown out your voice. What gave you strength? Because your voice didn't waver at all through any of that. Uh, your knees didn't buckle. Um, and I, I want to ask you this because there's so much fear out there, Chloe. As you know, there's so much fear for anybody to, to even ask a question about this, what to speak of, have a conversation, what to speak of a, a, a kid or a teenager or a young person like you who's maybe going through this, having the courage to, to speak up about it. So as I was looking there, you were standing there like a rock and your voice had power where do you find your strength and your courage to stand in the face of people who are physically, like actively trying to silence you? Hmm. I mean, I think I've already been through the worst part. Um, and I mean, 
I know I have the support of the people around me um, and my family, and I know that I'm doing the right thing, and that's really what keeps me going. I want to keep doing that. So with your, your new organization, uh, D-Trans United, you want to help empower other people's voices and help uh, bring more activists yes. uh, to this really important fight. Um, what's your advice to them? What's your advice to the Chloe's maybe, um, you know, who uh, might not have gone through everything that you've gone through to, to step up and speak out? It gets better from here. It's, it's hard growing up as a girl, especially in this day and age with, with social media and all these idealized and sexualized images of women's bodies and all these things that you feel like you can't match up to, but you are so much more than that. And adolescence is a really tough time, but it gets better from here and the pain isn't forever. Thank you. Thank you. You're surrounded by a lot of people who you know, but there's a lot of people who you don't know and you haven't met who are grateful for your voice, grateful for your courage, and um, are standing there, right there with you. So keep on, please. <laughs> uh, don't let anyone, and I know there are a lot of people, don't let anyone shut you up or silence you. I know you won't. Um, because you are helping to save people's lives by doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. You're so awesome. <laughs> I'm grateful that you're alive and on this earth right now at this place in time. <laughs> and if there's ever anything that I can do to help support you and your efforts, Chloe, count me as one of the many who are um, standing ready. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your time today. It's great to see you. Hope to see you, you in person too. again. <laughs> yeah, I really hope we can see you again. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Now, unfortunately, we are living in a time where there is so much fear around this issue in particular. We have the cancel culture. We have attacks really being directed toward it, towards anyone who dares even ask a question about biology, about uh, what their kids are being taught in school, about these decisions that, that children and families are making. And, and this is why Chloe's voice is so essential right now. Her story is incredibly powerful, and she's speaking from a place of firsthand experience that many others can directly connect with and relate to. Uh, her courage is, is to be commended. I don't know how else to put it. She started an organization called the D-Trans United. She talked a little bit about it, and they recently sent a letter to the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland talking about the long-term risks of gender treatments on kids. Again, for those who are pushing this so-called gender-affirming care, they never talk about what the long-term health consequences are. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from that letter to you uh, and share with you her words and the experiences of many others. She writes, Many of us were young teenagers when we decided on the direction of medical experts to pursue irreversible hormone treatments and surgeries to bring our bodies into closer alignment with what we thought was our true gender identity. Now, many of us had extensive histories of mental illness. 
Many of us had experienced significant childhood trauma. But all of this was ignored simply because we uttered the word gender. This utterance placed us on a narrow medical pathway that led us to sacrifice our healthy bodies and future fertility in obeisance to the claim that our suffering was a result of having a gender identity that did not match our biological sex. In other words, we were born in the wrong body. And we didn't know better. We were children. We trusted our doctors. Our parents were also misled. They were told the common myth that if they did not affirm our new identities, which entailed fully approving our medical transition, then we'd likely commit suicide. Given these options, what loving parent wouldn't choose to transition their child? This is not informed consent, but a decision forced under Now, as we read this and we hear this, it's hard not to be completely outraged by these so-called healthcare providers, these people who call themselves medical professions, who took this Hippocratic oath to do no harm, and yet they are pushing these procedures on our kids, mutilating their bodies and abusing them. This is why uh, both Chloe and I and others gathered together in Nashville recently to speak at the Rally to End Child Mutilation. There were thousands of people who turned out that day to also lift their voices, standing as one to protect our kids. Now, the letter continues, We condemn all violence, threats of violence, and intimidation directed at physicians and hospital staff without caveat, and anyone who engages in such behavior should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But we also cannot ignore the harms being carried out against countless children in the name of gender affirmation that constitute much more than mere threats. We bear the literal scars of this medical violence. We must not conflate passionate criticism with violence or incitement of violence. The medical safeguarding of children should not be a political issue. Since truth is a prerequisite for justice, we must ensure that the already hot embers of political tribalism are not stoked. Children deserve the best evidence-based medical care available. Silencing the victims and critics of gender-affirming practices is not a pathway to truth and justice, but to ignorance and harm. Please do the right thing. Please do the right thing. Is that so much to ask? Is it? Please do the right thing. This is the plea coming from Chloe and coming from others who have shared this traumatic experience and journey who now have to live with the consequences of those who abused their power. This is also a call to action to every one of us. We can't turn our heads away because we're afraid of the repercussions. We can't stand silently by and think, oh, well, you know, this is not happening to me or to my family or to my kids. The kids in this country, the children of this country need us to stand up for them. They need us to come together and protect them. We cannot abandon them during this time of need. We can't allow them to continue to be mutilated and experimented on just because we're afraid of social stigma, we're afraid of being shunned, we're afraid of being called names on Twitter, we're afraid of being labeled transphobic. 
Just imagine what they're going through. Our children are sacred. They're vulnerable. They're confused. And they're being fed lies by the corporate media. They're being fed lies by those in power in the White House, by the President of the United States. They're being fed lies by these so-called healthcare professionals who are not healthcare professionals at all, who are derelict in their duty. And they're being fed these lies by radical activists in positions of influence as teachers in our schools, all pushing this very dangerous agenda. So whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, our kids need us to stand up for them now. We have to lift our voices for them. Silence is not an option. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. This is Tulsi here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the show. If you would like to support this show and the content that we're creating as we take a stand for freedom and speak truth and speak with some common sense during these insane times, please visit TulsiGabbard.com and click on the support button. Uh, the only way that we're able to produce this show is through support from listeners and viewers just like you. Again, visit TulsiGabbard.com and click support. Aloha.